Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, March 18th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Mary Ellen McIntyre of CQ Roll Call. Hi, everyone. Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello, everybody. And my KHN colleague, Roshana Pradhan. Hi, everyone. So no lack of news this week. Let us get to it. I actually want to start the way we started last week, talking about the health items in the giant COVID relief bill that aren't strictly about COVID. Um, At the top of the list, of course, are the first big eligibility expansions for financial help buying plans under the Affordable Care Act since it became law 11 years ago next Tuesday. Happy birthday, ACA. But as with all things ACA related, it's pretty confusing. Enrollment has been reopened in most states for people to sign up since February. It will remain open until May. But what if you signed up already but are now eligible for a more generous plan for less money? Or what if you're getting unemployment and now you're eligible for a no premium plan? I worry about whether there's going to be enough help explaining all of these options to all of the people who are now eligible. There's there's literally a couple of million people who could get a good deal or get a better deal than they have now. But walking through this is going to be pretty nightmarish, isn't it? I am interested to sort of see what sort of public service announcement educational campaigns comes along. You know, um, President Biden, the First Lady, Vice President Harris, the Second Gentleman have all sort of started this week on their tour across the country, going to different states, sort of talking about this. I haven't seen as much so far sort of focus on these provisions, which are important. You know, someone who purchased an Obamacare plan during open enrollment at the end of last year, you know, to get these increased subsidies is going to need to kind of go back to get them or else not get them until they file their 2021 taxes a year from now. So this is definitely something that I'm sort of interested in seeing, you know, what does HHS do to sort of tell people this is something that you need to do? Are people going to be getting emails? What are they going to do to let people know that you can get all this extra money and get this plan for a more affordable cost, but you do have to do something to do that. One thing I, you know, people in government or I think who work in Washington love to say, well, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, which might be true. But I think in tandem with what's so different right now is, of course, as we know, the Biden administration is devoting so much effort, including PSAs and their ad campaigns to the COVID vaccines, right? Get vaccinated. And so right now it's like, well, you have that also going on. And so how do you balance the need for, well, we have to do put a lot of resources into that, of course, for obvious reasons. And then now also go sign up for health insurance. That's just a lot of uh, very two very big weighty issues that are that are important at the same time. And we should point out that as we speak, there is still no HHS secretary, although by the time you hear this, uh, there probably will be because the vote is scheduled for noon on Thursday. Um, and unless something very odd happens, uh, there will be an HHS secretary, I would think probably sworn in by the end of the day. But obviously, they're not staffed up. And you know, it's the middle of March. And this is a big deal. And it's basically, you know, career people who are going to be in charge of this who are fully competent, but they're not going to be able to do, you know, these big public communications campaigns. Well, there is some talk of extending open enrollment. Um, I think Bloomberg Even beyond had, May? 
there is some talk about giving people some grace time. I, I think that it's a mess. I also think it's easier to get people's attention with some kind of social media and, and free advertising that says, this will be cheaper for you. People sort of, you know, if you do it really simple, here's how to save money. It, it, it does catch your ear. On the other hand, no, it's a mess. It's, it's one of, you know, an infinite number of messes we're dealing with and whether they can get the word out or whether they can figure out some additional way, like when you get your, your can they ask the health plans to say, here's a cheaper option. Would you like to look at it? in your email. Um, I mean, half of Although us kill- your, your cheaper option might be somebody else's plan. Yeah. I mean, there may be, or just some notice that, that they asked the insurers to say that the American recovery app gave you new options. You, you know, you have three weeks to double check. There may be things, I mean, a lot of us ignore those kinds of emails, but if you have the right subject line, save money, um, not spam. <laughs> I don't know how you do the right subject line because we, we kill those too. But I, mean, I don't think it's impossible. I don't think it's easy. So one big, one big deal that I think we didn't mention last week, if you accidentally got too much in subsidies last year, meaning your income ended up higher than you or the IRS estimated, you don't have to pay back that excess for 2020, um, which normally you would. If you get too much in subsidies, when you do your taxes, you have to sort of reconcile it. And if you owe money, you have to pay it back. The 2020 problem had been leaving people with tax bills in the thousands of dollars simply because they might have gotten unemployment benefits um, or gotten a job towards the end of the year. But the complication to the good news is if you've already filed your taxes, you may have to refile. And at this point, the IRS is telling people to hold off on filing because they haven't updated their forms and tax software can't update until the IRS does. This could really be a case of giving people help that just makes them more frustrated, even with the new tax due date of May 17th, right? I'm really I'm really worried about what's going to happen when people sit down to do their taxes and try to figure out all of this. You know, they've been given all of this help and it's not going to be that easy to take advantage of. I'm just getting a headache just thinking about all these moving parts, Julie. It's very, yeah, it's a lot. Um, I, I would say, I mean, one thing about the, the outreach that um, you know, the Biden folks have the benefit of. And of course, as we know, there are so many people inside the Biden administration who also worked in the Obama administration. They have the benefit of experience. Um, and we know from people who have done outreach and enrollment assistance in the past when it comes to the ACA, that promoting the financial assistance is among the best messages to convince people to sign up. And so, you know, so at least they have some hindsight that they can they can rely upon to maybe inform what they what they do going forward. Is is there a concern that you know that if this doesn't go I won't say as well as they hope. If people just sort of don't take advantage of it, we are seeing people sign up. But I worry that if people sort of don't get and see these increased subsidies, it's going to make it harder to try and continue them when they expire 2 years from now. Well, I think that the new subsidies do help people who are the upper end of the of the income scale who have presumably been shopping for insurance and been unable to buy it. Getting to them saying, try again, is a fairly simple message. The problem is the Recovery Act had, you know, it's $2 trillion. It had so much stuff in it, much of which is extremely popular, but I don't, none of us, we're all informed. None of us could rattle off you know, 50 of the things, maybe Julie could, but 50 of the things that are in there that are in fact popular. We all know the health ones. 
but people are getting hearing about am I, can I get this check am I getting that is it coming when is it coming is it coming before my taxes is it, you know uh, what happened to last year's subsidy I mean there's there's a child care how old is my kid what am I going to get you know it is confusing and you know gross income net income nobody knows everybody likes this bill including a lot of Republicans it is popular it's like a seventy percent approval rating that doesn't mean they understand what they like about it just like with Obamacare they didn't. They liked it and thought they didn't. So <laughs> pulling out the right message or messages for the right people is hard. On the other hand, it is a popular message. It is easier to get good news through than bad news through. So yeah. how do you simplify it? How do you break it down to a couple of, you know, fools you, you're eligible for a subsidy. I don't know quite how they do that. They have two months less. So they got to get that act together. It's not the hardest thing they have to do. It's a lot easier than getting an anti-vaxxer to sign that they want to get vaccinated. Anything to do with taxes and money and health insurance is complicated. Yeah, I feel like, you know, the, 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 the bill is popular because it's, hey, we're from the government. We're going to give you money. Um, but the hard part is you're going to have to actually, other than the stimulus checks, which will come automatically, you may have to work pretty hard to get that money. Um, I think that's sort of the, the, the trick with this one. All right. Well, I want to move on. Now that the COVID bill is law, Congress and President Biden are looking to the next health project. Joanne, you and Alice had an interesting story this week on prospects for a public option. Um, what are they? <laughs> Actually, you know, I, I learned a lot of things I didn't know doing. I thought I knew what was going on with public option. And, and it's always fun when you do a story and you say, oh, I didn't know about that part of it at all. As we know, the Democrats during the primary season had a big fight about should they go for Medicare for all or should they go for public option? Biden is pro-public option. Mr. Becerra now is going to be pro-public option since he's serving the President Biden. So the, it's the public option. So the question is, when do you try to do it? How do you try to do it? And what does it look like? Three little questions. My assumption had been if you can't get it through now because of the politics, even if you do it in reconciliation, can you even get 50 votes, 51 votes, because not all the centrist Democrats like it. You need every single one of them. Can you get it in reconciliation, the next reconciliation, when there's so many other things they're going to try to do through reconciliation? I mean, climate and infrastructure and a million other things. Uh, may Im Well, immigration can't go through reconciliation, but there are a lot of other priorities, things they have to work with. Are they going to try to do this tough public option vote as part of that? What many of us thought was that the backup would be, well, the, the liberal states would try to do it. And what I learned in this story, and it was really interesting because it was Larry Levitt of Kaiser who, who pointed this out, the subsidies are now generous for the next two years, you know? So if your reason for getting a public option in a state was to make health care premiums more affordable for more people, the Recovery Act just did that. So do the states have to go through their own big bruising battle to try to do what will probably be watered down anyway by the time the healthcare industry gets through with it, which is what happened in Washington state. So I'm looking less at a state backup in the next two years, and I'm looking more at what's the trigger for trying to do this federally, and is it now or is it after 2022? Because Biden ran on it. Biden wants to do it. It was in the original ACA back in 2009, 2010. It was in the blueprint when they built it. How is this supposed to work? But politically, it's really hard. And there's a lot of other things. So I sort of think you will hear Democrats moving forward. Bills are being drawn up as we speak. They'll, I think you'll see momentum. I think you'll see talking about it, whether you'll see a final push 
I'm not sure. The other really interesting thing, and then I'll stop, but I also didn't know about this. And this I'm not hearing on the Hill, but I am hearing in the policy world. And sometimes they talk to each other. Um, there is some discussion about creating a small public option that would serve the Medicaid gap population. Those which two, didn't which didn't get fixed. of the one point nine trillion dollar it got a COVID carrot, bill. but it didn't get an entire carrot salad, right? So there are twelve states. I believe it's twelve. Someone can correct me if it's it's twelve. It's twelve states that have not expanded Medicaid. There are more than 2 million people, maybe more than that, who cannot get insurance in the exchange and who cannot get insurance in Medi- in, through their state Medicaid, and they're stuck and they're, they can't have, they have nothing. So could you create a public option that covers the Medicaid population? Could you design the Medicaid something? Gap, you, the, the whole Medicaid, Medicaid gap or the Medicaid gap population? population. And then, then you have a toehold for an expanded public option later, you've gotten the mechanism into law and you build it out from there. I mean, it's just an idea. It's, I'm raising it because it's a new idea. There are things wrong with it. I mean, anything for poor people is politically vulnerable, right? They're, they're hard to get through. The progressives thought the public option was a compromise. An itchy bitsy, teeny weeny public option is going to be even more of, of a, a compromise. They're not going to like it. So, I'm just throwing it out there because it's an interesting idea and I'm interested in seeing where it goes. I'm going to add a layer to this. Um, This week, we also saw the reintroduction of Medicare for All legislation in the House, led by Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal of Washington and Debbie Dingell of Michigan. Uh, Dingell's late husband and predecessor in the seat, John Dingell, introduced a national health insurance bill in every Congress since he joined in 1955 in honor of his father, who preceded him in the seat, who tried to get national health insurance passed during the New Deal in the 19. 1930s. So obviously this goes back a ways. Now, clearly, if Congress can barely pass subsidy expansion for the ACA, uh, it's not ready to pass Medicare for all. But how important is it for Democrats to have a marker out there for the health debate so that they can sort of negotiate some of these smaller things? I mean, is that is that why this is here? Or is this going to become, as it has in the last two big national health debates, kind of a divisive issue for Democrats? One thing that I thought was interesting yesterday um, when Representatives Jayapal and Dingell did a press call announcing this bill was they talked about trying to get some aspects of the bill that are maybe a bit more popular. Some of the drug pricing provisions, you know, health equity passed in some of the upcoming bills and sort of leaving the broader Medicare for all debate for the future, having hearings, building more of a legislative base for it. That wasn't really something that I'd heard them talking about in the past. And I took that sort of as an acknowledgement of maybe we can try to get some of this done in the upcoming reconciliation bill and then like continue to build our case for single payer. Another thing that I did think was interesting was that Congresswoman Dingell sort of said, I don't know at this point if I would go for a public option as a compromise. I mean, I think we can question whether or not when actually faced with the vote, vote progressive Democrats would vote against that and like when it actually came down to it. But I think it's definitely, you know, putting out a marker of where they are on Medicare for all. They picked up Energy and Commerce Chairman Frank Pallone as a co-sponsor this session. So I think that this is sort of a marker and something they're continuing to work for and not something that they're going to just let by in the debate over this as it moves forward. I do wonder, though, just overall, you know, one of the things I keep thinking about when it comes to healthcare, of course, is how much political capital are these guys, especially the Biden administration, willing to spend on this? I mean, the Obama administration clearly did. Even President Trump, you know, the first part of his presidency was defined by health care and for Republicans also. And so 
I just wonder, is this going to be the third presidency in which healthcare is the defining issue that you spend everything on? Fourth. I mean, it goes back to Bill Clinton. It's fourth. Yeah. They all took a drubbing on the midterms because of healthcare. You know, Clinton did in 94 in a really historical way. Well, that was not the midterms, but, you know, he... he yes, it was. was. Yeah, yeah 92, 94. I mean, that's when yeah, Newt Gingrich, they, they, they won the House for the first time in 40 years. Obama took a, took a hit in, in 2010. Trump took a hit in 2018. It was all health care. Does Biden want that to be? I mean, he's got a lot of things struggling. The other thing is if you get caught in this great big fight over public option versus Medicare for all, lose sight of those subsidies that we were just talking about. They're in the law for two years and then they expire. And that was a cost issue and an emergency. We'll get them through because of COVID issue, right? Two years from now, they go away. Democrats do not want to see them go away either as a policy, they believe in it, and B, politically, you give something, you take it back. Not a good look. It's also really hard for the Republicans to vote against it. So if I were a Democratic strategist, I'd probably want to vote on that shortly before the 2022 elections so that you do get them extended so you can vote, you can run on saying, we got you these and we're keeping them now. And you either make a Republican vote for them or you have a campaign ad about how they're taking away your subsidies and you're going to be uninsured again. On the Democratic side, that's part of the public option quandary. How much do you put in the public option how much of your energy and how much you just try to lock in these benefits and make them make them stay there for good. Right. And that might, again, like increase the political urgency again, not just because it's money that would be going away. But as you said, you know, both these subsidies and the public option are designed to address the affordability question. And at least in the near term, you know, that's been, you know, somewhat addressed. And so, you know, what's the argument for pursuing a public option at the same time when they're supposed to achieve the same thing? All right. Well, we will definitely come back to this more next week. Um, While we are waiting for the Supreme Court to give a yay or nay to the Affordable Care Act, yes, that Texas case is still out there. um, We did see the change of administration change some other cases set for the high court this session. The court has formally nixed the oral arguments originally set for the end of the month about the fate of the work requirements for Medicaid recipients. Arkansas, which wanted to keep its requirements, is reserving the right to bring the case back. But for now, it appears that the Biden administration is going to take work requirements off the table as an option. In fact, just last night, uh, they formally canceled the work requirement waiver for Arkansas and New Hampshire, which were the two states that were involved in this particular Supreme Court lawsuit. Uh, Also this week at the high court, the various plaintiffs in the suit challenging the Trump administration's rules evicting Planned Parenthood from the federal family planning program, uh, along with the defendant, which is now the Biden administration, asked the court to dismiss that case, although two anti-abortion groups are seeking to intervene to defend the rules. So that's not quite a done deal, at least not as of this morning. Um, The Biden administration, as we've just discussed, has been busy with other things. Um, Still doesn't, at least as of this moment, have an HHS secretary confirmed. Um, But how important is it for them to clear away some of these court cases that could turn out in ways they might not want? You know, work requirements are interesting uh, in that it clearly had an effect. Time has no meaning anymore. So I'm trying to think of how long ago this was, you know, Blur a couple times of years ago. something, right? So I think it was 2018. Right. So 2018. Gosh, what a different era that was. Anyways, but I think currently it's it's not as if they've really been doing much of anything. So it's a very... Uh, it clearly makes Democrats happy to just scrub this thing from from Medicaid, but it's a good political uh, win also to sort of, you know, do what a lot of uh, liberals and Obama administration vets and Democrats have been wanting to see, 
in Medicaid. So I think it's important to, you know, who wants to be bogged down in these lawsuits, I think, when they have enough on their hands, you know, so that's kind of how I think about it. I do feel like they've been sort of waiting to the last minute on some of these things, though. That work requirement oral argument was set for March 29th, and it's only like in the last week or two that they've actually gotten around to saying, "Um, yeah, maybe we would like to make this case go away. (laughs) I think part of that is just like the manner of getting staffed up at HHS and DOJ. You know, Merrick Garland only got into that his post, what, last week? So that's definitely a challenge. Someone pointed out it's not just that nobody's home at HHS, it's that nobody's home at OMB either. And that's where regulations have to go before you can either do or undo them. So, I mean, it really, in, in a lot of ways, a lot of sort of the, the slow start is due to staffing as much as anything else. And plus on the Medicaid side, one thing that they, I mean, they have also been in fairness, they've been busy with the policy when it came to work requirements. They've been busy on some other ACA stuff. And of course, American Rescue Plan took up a lot of time, you know, even on the administration side, sort of figuring out how to implement a lot of this stuff. So Mary Ellen made a really good point, right? We just got our new attorney general in. So- yeah, they're in charge of lawsuits. <laughs> and I think I think to your point, Julie, uh, they didn't want this to get to the Supreme Court. I mean, obviously, it's a conservative court now um, with the justice of adding an addition of Justice Amy Coney Barrett. So not having to do these arguments is probably just one less headache in general for the administration of a possible ruling that they would then need to abide by that they didn't favor policy-wise. Can't the states like Arkansas pursue this anyway? Because... Even if the Biden administration does not grant these waivers and allow work requirements and the Supreme Court wouldn't couldn't order them to. I mean, that's not the issue here. But a future Republican administration could reinstate or allow new work requirements. So I'm not sure that this legal issue, just because oral arguments were postponed, I'm not sure this legal issue goes away because there's a dozen or so states that have have them on their books or we're close to having them on their books or we're trying to do them and b- believe in them. I mean, Republicans believe in work requirements. So even if they can't get them in place under a Biden administration, they still might want them to be, they want might want a court ruling saying they're okay so that they can proceed again, or at least they can continue fighting and symbolically fighting the Biden administration on these kinds of policies. And um, that's exactly what they're doing. And I was going to say, I was going to add, in the case of the Title X regulations, um, a, a far less conservative Supreme Court upheld almost identical regulations back in 1991, which I remember because it was my first Supreme Court case that I ever followed. So I think the Planned Parenthood certainly and the, the you know, uh, abortion rights groups um, weren't real thrilled about sort of going to this Supreme Court, which would seem likely to uphold them again. So from that point of view, I think they're probably happier to make, again, this case go away for now. I mean, Joanne's right. The fact that these cases are going away, it doesn't mean they're going away permanently, but at least they're getting them off the, the immediate list of things that this administration has to do. Um, I do want to talk about COVID, though, because guess what? We're seeing another spike or an alarming rise in cases, at least in a lot, lots of parts of the country. If you listen to epidemiologist Michael Osterholm's podcast from the University of Minnesota, and I do, he's been calling this for weeks, predicting that the new variants will spread faster than we can vaccinate people. This follows an alarming fourth wave in Europe, which has been a few weeks ahead of us all through 
through this. And in Europe, there's a lot of consternation about the AstraZeneca vaccine and whether or not it's linked to an upswing in dangerous blood clots. Now, the AstraZeneca vaccine isn't in use in the U.S. It hasn't even applied for an emergency use authorization. But I wonder if concerns about the vaccine in Europe will spread across the ocean to give people more doubts about the vaccines currently in use here, Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J, which have not actually been linked to any serious problem. I feel like, you know, it's like playing telephone and people get little bits of information and they'll think, oh, look, there's people dying from the vaccine. Maybe I shouldn't get it after all. It's not a good thing. I mean, even if if AstraZeneca is cleared, and I believe the um, European Medical Medicine Agency is supposed to issue some kind of ruling today, it's still being used in Britain. It's still being used in other countries around the world. Even if they say it's not causal that, yes, these people got blood clots, but X number of people get blood clots every week and this is a coincidence. I mean, just like if they were hit by a bus, you wouldn't say it was because of the vaccine, right? I don't want to belittle it. I mean, people got sick, but it leaves sort of a bad taste in people's mouth, right? Uh, even if EMA says, no, 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 don't worry about it. It's okay. We're going to start using it. And it's not clear that every European country will start using it again. And it just creates nervousness. And that nervousness then say, well, if, you know, if this one's not safe, is that one not safe? I mean, we have not gotten over the hurdle of we are moving in the right direction on vaccine confidence, but we have not gotten over that hurdle. There is not 90% of people in this country who are willing to take it. So, or 75 or whatever the, the herd immunity number needs to be. Now, the numbers over the fast, last few days that have gone up, I mean, I don't think we know yet it's a big spike as opposed to some noise. I mean, things do go up and down. I mean, there are times when it drops more and at times it goes up a little bit. A few weeks ago, it looked like we were having a spike and it turned out to be just a few off days. We can hope that that's what it is. We certainly know there's improvement in the nursing homes, which is where a lot of the deaths were. I mean, that we know. The vaccination's not complete there. It's not 100%. But boy, we see a lot of improvement in nursing homes and in their staff. So it could be either way. I mean, we could be going into another surge or we could have a couple of bad days that make us nervous and, and, the, and the trajectory remains in the right direction. Michael Osterholm is always nervous when someone has to be as part of we need people like that. But I don't think we know yet. I've been puzzled by the sort of unevenness about states. You know, there's a bunch of states that are now open to everybody over age 16. And there's a bunch of states that haven't even opened to high risk people under 65 yet. And I, you know, at first I thought it was like state size. And then I kind of was looking at the list. And it looks to me, and this is just a theory on my part, the states where it's harder to get a vaccine are states that have more, that are bluer, that have more Democrats. And I wonder if the demand is higher in bluer states, and that's why they're opening things more slowly. The demand that the states, you know, if you look at the states that are that are wide open now, states like Alaska, I think Alabama and Mississippi, um, I think Texas is, is open to more people. Those are states with more Republicans. So speaking of Republican hesitancy, Um, Republican pollster Frank Luntz, who we had as a podcast guest in 2018, did a fascinating focus group with Republicans who said they weren't planning to get the vaccine. And he tested what would sway them. And it turned out that it was not the endorsement of other politicians they trust, including Donald Trump, but actual scientific information from former Obama CDC head Tom Frieden. Are we doing our vaccine messaging all wrong here? (laughs) I reported on Luntz a few weeks ago, and and I thought not only did the work was interesting, but I had in, in doing reporting about hesitancy, 
some of what he found has already permeated. I talked to people in Minnesota and, and Appalachia, and I later learned that they, they were using the words that he's using. Um, it's not just Tom Friedman. It's also, I mean, yes, the CDC has a, still has trust. In, America still trusts the CDC, despite everything that went wrong in the last two years. He also found, like, saying, do this for your community didn't work, but do it for your family did. You know, he found a lot of personal messages that worked across the board in different ethnic groups. He also really looked a lot at rural voters who are very hesitant. He looked at uh, Republicans who are extremely hesitant. And he had interesting language that you can find online. I'm not sure every single thing he found, because there's other research that shows campaigns do help, and celebrity stuff does help, and trusted trusted messengers do help. He was saying that's sort of irrelevant. I, I actually was glad to see President Trump getting on to Fox the other day and saying, you should take this as safe. I mean, he should say it louder, stronger, clearer, and more frequently. I, I do think that he helped create attitudes about the virus that then shape attitudes about vaccination. I, I thought the, the Lund's language, I mean, he's a brilliant, you know, he wrote the contract for America. He's really brilliant at using words to achieve political goals, or in this case, a public health goal. His report's worth reading. You can find it. The de Beaumont um, Foundation sponsored it. Everybody I've talked to, and I'm sure, you know, Mel and Rachna have heard the same thing. When you report on this, people say we need lots and lots and lots of different kinds of campaigns. We need national campaigns. We need celebrities. We need politicians. We need medical people. We need people who look like you, your neighbors, your friends. We need to get it into the churches and the synagogues and the mosques. We need to get it into community groups and schools and colleges. We need national campaigns. We need local campaigns. We need micro local campaigns. And we haven't seen that all out push. We, we're just beginning to see that. And that has to happen. One thing that I found interesting from that Frank Lutz study was sort of how Tom Frieden came out and he talked about, you know, this vaccine wasn't rushed. We've been working on vaccines and this technology for years and years and years. You know, like red tape was cut, but we weren't cutting corners on the science and that reassuring people. I think it was Monday. Anthony Fauci came out and sort of gave a shortened, abbreviated version of that talk, talking about how this research has gone on for years. So, you know, maybe that is something that we'll continue to see kind of pushed out there um, at a high level messaging campaign um, in the coming weeks now that there's more data that that's something that, you know, might make people feel more comfortable getting these vaccines. Yeah, I mean, I think at its core, public health messaging, you know, what what I thought was so interesting, or at least my takeaway is that there is nuance that you need in messaging, depending on who you're dealing with, like some minorities, for example, some minority cultures will really respond well to family oriented messaging around vaccines, you know, not just to protect yourself, but your family unit, your community, you know, for, especially for uh, kind of ethnicities that are much more communal as far as how they live. But one thing that I thought was maybe more or less universally true is that people just have a lot of questions about these vaccines, which makes sense. This is a new pandemic. We've never had a lot of these vaccines before. It's not like a nurse I spoke to for a story a, a couple of months ago said, you know, people just have more questions because I've never done a flu clinic before where none of the people who walked in had never had a flu shot. This is really just about scientific education and answering questions and telling me how it works and telling me whether my doctor says it's safe and, you know, how long the research went on for. And if you stick to that, that will really resonate with people. Um, I also thought former New, Jer New Jersey Governor uh, Chris Christie's experience in sharing what he went through seemed to really hit home w with these uh, these voters. And so that also is really telling. 
Yeah, I, I mentioned this before we started. We've seen a lot of Republican politicians who've gotten COVID. We've seen a lot of Democratic politicians who've gotten COVID, too. But Christie was one of the few who got a really serious case, ended up in the intensive care unit, and now talks about it. I mean, he's proselytizes about it. It's like, you don't want to get this. It can make you very sick. It almost killed me. Get the vaccine. I think that has more of an impact than, you know, somebody like Rand Paul, who, as far as we know, was not very sick and never wore a mask and right. still doesn't. Even from early. <laughs> Earlier, um, you know, before we got to vaccinations, whether it came to taking the precautions that all of our public health officials and government officials say we should be doing on masking and distancing, it's been shown that, you know, people who knew someone who got extremely sick or potentially died from COVID-19 are much more likely to, of course, take this much more seriously than people who just don't know anyone who, who went through something really horrific. They're really like three groups of the public. There's the people who are hitting refresh on their browser and dialing their phones, trying to get this vaccine. The pro the confident, I want it. They're the, you know, the over my dead body, which is... That's the, uh, not we the can right call them the, metaphor. the hell no I don't people. want it under any circumstances. The real anti-vaxxer. The right. hell no people. Right. The, the really anti-vaxxer. And there's this in-between hesitant group. And what we're seeing is the in-between hesitant group. And that's what Rajna was just describing, the people who, who have questions about the safety and science and what is this thing and where did it come from and how fast is it and the, the process of the science. That group is shrinking. And they're shrinking toward greater vaccine acceptance. So that hardcore held no group is not changing very much. But that I'm not so sure moving into, yeah, I'm ready to take it. That is moving in the right direction. And it's moving in the right direction, including in some hard, harder areas like the nursing home staff that initially refused it in January. It's not up to 100%, but it is more than we're taking it because they've heard more about it. And they've seen friends and neighbors and coworkers take it and nothing bad happened. In fact, they're hugging their grandkids. So I was like in a playground. I was taking a walk with a friend the other day. And we walked through a playground and it was so clear. To, and there were like a lot more grandparents than you would normally see on a playground. And you could just sort of sense this joy. You could sense these are people who haven't seen, they haven't pushed a swing with a little kid in it for a year. And as people see that, that's going to be part of the messaging. You know, the restoration of hugs is going to be part of what gets this country vaccinated. And I think even yesterday, uh, CDC uh, director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, tweeted actually a photo of her and her own mother, right, saying that I was in Washington for congressional testimony and um, I got to hug my mom. And, you know, that I am sure for people who have been totally isolated from their families for the last year, that will resonate a lot. Yeah, I mean, she got to hug her mom and her mom got to hug her. Yeah, I think some of this is clearly taking care of itself, as Joanne says, as people see other people getting vaccinated and nothing terrible happens and they can actually go out and play with their family members. But I also got an email and you probably all got the same email yesterday from a so-called medical group telling me that it wasn't a vaccine. It was gene therapy. All that, you know, we all know where it came from and we all and it was more strident than it had been. We all get them. And it was much, much more anti-vax, overt misinformation than we had seen from this organization in the recent past. I did see that. All right. Well, we will continue this, but that is as much time as we have for the news this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. 
Joanne, why don't you go first this week? I actually chose a podcast, even though I usually choose magazine pieces. Stan Dorn, who's a friend of mine who currently works at um, Families USA, actually told me about this one. It's from Radiolab. It was um, reported by Molly Webster. It's called Dispatch 14, The COVID Crystal Ball. And it tells the story of a very, very sick immunocompromised man in the UK. He already had a disease. He ultimately died. He spent months fighting COVID and he was being studied and they were doing genomic tests all the time. And his body became this battleground for a whole lot of different variants. And they didn't escape. He didn't infect other people. They died with him. Then when they gave him like plasma, it got worse. More variants figured out, ah, they just gave me these antibodies. I'm going to figure out how to mutate so I could get around them. And he had like six or seven different mutations. And although they disappeared with him, this was a few months ago. And the variants we're dealing with now look very much like that. So they called it the crystal ball because he was a laboratory for how this virus, the tools it has, its, its nefariousness and creativity, how it changes itself as we attack it. It was, it, was like, it was really quite interesting to listen to it. So I have not heard that, but I now I want to. Mel. Yeah, so my extra credit for the week is not the most inspiring story. Um, it was in the New York Times, Maggots Rape and Yet Five Stars, How U.S. Ratings of Nursing Homes Misled the Public by... Jessica Silver Greenberg and Robert Gebeloff. Um, I thought this story was really interesting. We've talked so much on the podcast, you know, a little bit today and over the last year about how the COVID-19 pandemic just ravaged nursing homes. And this story sort of looked at why nursing homes were left so unprepared. And a lot of the reason is CMS has this five-star rating system that it turns out was very easy for nursing homes to sort of manipulate and make themselves look on the days that they maybe knew that they were going to have investigators coming in to prepare for how to show a much better situation than was actually in the nursing homes for these residents who in often cases were living just through awful, awful conditions. And so, you know, it sort of looks at this is why, in part, nursing homes were able to be so hard hit by the pandemic and sort of, you know, really leaves you hoping that, you know, these underlying issues are going to be addressed now that there's been so much focus on nursing homes for the last year. Yeah, it's, it's a very impressive story. Rashina. Continuing with the uh, nursing home theme. So my extra credit this week was a, uh, it's actually a, a series of stories that were written about a year ago, but this week I was a, a finalist for uh, the Goldsmith Prize, which is a, an investigative reporting prize awarded by Harvard, I think, Shorenstein Center. So it's called Careless, and it's from the Indianapolis Star. So this series uncovered how Indiana, which has some of the worst nursing homes in the country as far as quality of care, took advantage of a, a loophole in government funding for the Medicaid program. And instead of taking money that was meant for nursing homes, they diverted it to other purposes like building new hospitals, like giving money to hospital executives. And of course, in the meantime, care continued to be uh, really terrible. I mean, this this it's just gutting uh, this series. My husband actually joked, he said, why are you reading this sad stuff? And I said, it's important journalism and we should read it, you know, because it uncovered some really uh, awful wrongdoing. And of course, uh, just as the pandemic struck, we know what happened in nursing homes. And so this is 
uh, related, I guess, in that way also. So I'm going to follow Rosh and his lead and recommend a story, actually a series that's not new, but that's gotten some recent recognition. Um, our KHN series that we've been doing in partnership with The Guardian, Lost on the Frontlines, was named a finalist this week for the National Institute for Healthcare Management Digital Media Awards. So far, the project has documented more than 3,500 health workers who lost their lives to COVID in the last year. You can see the profiles of them on our site or on The Guardian site. Um, it's heartbreaking and important, and I'm really proud of my colleagues who've worked so hard on this. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound good, even when we're in different places. And also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Mel? At Mel McIntyre. Joanne? At Joanne Cannon. Rachna. At Rachna Dixit. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.